Well, if you do a little research regarding the most important or influential people of all time, you will likely find some debate and disagreement regarding who belongs in the top 10. But for the most part, you will find consensus regarding who belongs in the number one spot. From the Guardian newspaper to Business Insider to History Collection and Wikipedia, there is agreement that the most important or influential person of all time is Jesus Christ. We are doing a five-part sermon series on Jesus Christ called Man of Sorrows, King of Glory. And so far, we have studied his birth, life, and death. This morning, we turn the corner, so to speak, in our five-part series as we move from Christ's sorrow to his glory. John T. Rhodes writes, if Jesus' humiliation charts his journey from womb to tomb, his exaltation takes us from grave to glory. This morning we are considering the resurrection of Jesus Christ. One of the things that is unique about Christianity is the importance of historical events. The Christian faith is not merely built on ideas. Historian John Dixon explains it well. He writes, unlike the Hindu Upanishads, which focus on the believer's merger with the life of Brahman, or the Buddhist Tripitaka, which emphasizes the extinguishment of self and suffering, or the Islamic Quran, which centers on the nature and practice of submission to God, the New Testament revolves around a series of events that are meant to have occurred in Judea and Galilee between 5 BC and AD 30. This makes Christianity particularly open, some would say vulnerable, to historical scrutiny. The logic is simple. If you claim that something spectacular took place in history, intelligent people are going to ask you historical questions. Christianity has, on the whole, welcomed this. It is as if the Christian faith places its head on the chopping block of public scrutiny and invites everyone to take a swing. Thus far, Christianity has fared well. One of the series of events to which Dixon refers, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is of critical importance. Scholar N.T. Wright wrote, The resurrection makes Christianity the most irritating religion on the face of the earth. The reason is because many people today decide what they believe by reading it and saying, I like it, or I don't like it. If Jesus was raised from the dead, you have to deal with everything in the Bible. But if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, I don't know why you're vexing yourself over any ethical teaching. The resurrection is a historical event, a paradigm-shattering historical event. Most importantly, Scripture makes the point that if certain historical events recorded in the Gospels did not actually take place, then the Christian faith falls apart. Specifically, Paul, who was a leader in the first century church, made this point in the book of 1 Corinthians when speaking of the resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 13 through 19, we read, If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. 
We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. When it comes to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it is all or nothing. There is no hedging. If he was not raised, then our faith is futile, Christianity is pointless, and we're all wasting our time. We know that Christ died upon a cross. We know this from Scripture. We know this from other historical sources. We know that Christ was put to death on a Roman cross outside of Jerusalem sometime around the year A.D. 30. The question is, what happened after that? If Christ has not been raised, then all of his claims are false. But if he was raised, then we must take his claims seriously. You see, when Jesus began his public ministry, he made a staggering claim. We read about this in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, which says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus declared that with his arrival... The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has arrived. Jesus declared that in his person, in his ministry, the kingdom of God had showed up on the earth. If this was not true, then that was an incredibly arrogant and misleading thing to say. Later in his ministry, Jesus turned his disciples and asked them a couple of questions. As you might imagine, rumors were spreading about Jesus. People were hearing about him. They were hearing about the things that he did. They were hearing about the things that he taught. People were making uh, all kinds of conclusions regarding who they believed Jesus to be. And so Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they answered his question by recounting for him some of the popular rumors going around at the time. They told him, well, some people say you're John the Baptist. Some people say you're Elijah or one of the prophets of old like Jeremiah. But then Jesus asked them a more poignant question. He said, but who do you say that I am? We read about this conversation in Matthew's gospel in chapter 16. And friends, that is the question we are all confronted with when it comes to Jesus. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that Jesus is? In response to the question, we read Peter's answer in Matthew chapter 16, verse 16, where he said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter answered by saying, You are the Christ 
meaning the Messiah, God's anointed and chosen king. You are the one who was promised long ago. You are the fulfillment of these scriptures and prophecies. And Jesus did not respond to him by saying, nope, you're wrong. I'm sorry if I misled you, but that's not the case. That is not what he said. No, we read in verse 17, Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus not only affirmed, yes, you are correct, I am the Christ, the Messiah, God's anointed and chosen king, but he went so far as to say, the reason you know this, Peter, is because God has revealed this to you. This is truth, and the reason you know this truth is because God has known it to you. God has revealed it to you. God has opened your eyes to see the truth, that I am the Christ, the Messiah, God's chosen king. We saw last week that during his trial, torture, and execution, Jesus was mocked relentlessly for the idea that he was a king. The Roman soldiers made him a crown of thorns and placed it on his head, bowing down to him, sarcastically saying, Hail, King of the Jews. People in the crowd who watched when he was crucified derided him and said, Save yourself. The chief priests said, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. The idea that a man in such a weak, humiliating, and shameful state could be a king was laughable to them. The idea that God's chosen and anointed king could die on a Roman cross was absurd. But would his death and burial be the last word, or would he somehow be vindicated? We will begin reading about his burial and then read what happened after his burial. Our text this morning is Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 57, and we'll go through chapter 28, verse 15. Again, that's Matthew 27, 57, and we'll go through chapter 28, verse 15. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea, named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first." Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. 
Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble." So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Rather than leaving his body to be disposed of by the Romans, a man named Joseph took courage and asked for the body. Joseph was a respected member of the council. And the council refers to the Sanhedrin, which was a council made up of the Jewish religious leaders in charge of the temple in Jerusalem. And what we see in the scriptures is that obviously most of them opposed Jesus. Most of them strongly opposed Jesus and sought to undermine him and dissuade anybody from believing that he was the Messiah. But Joseph was different. He was referred to as a disciple of Jesus, which must have been lonely as he was a member of the council that opposed Jesus. When, Joseph, when Jesus had died, Joseph courageously asked Pilate for the body. It would take courage because Jesus died as an enemy of the state. It would take courage because he was hated by Joseph's colleagues who condemned him to die. It would take courage for Joseph to identify with Jesus in this way, he took great risk to identify with Jesus and do something kind for him, to treat him with dignity and give him a proper burial. What did he stand to gain by doing this? From his perspective, in that moment, what did Joseph stand to gain by showing Jesus this kindness and giving him a respectful, proper burial. From his perspective, there was really nothing to gain, but there was quite a bit to lose. Respect, his place on the council, he could put himself in danger. Doesn't Joseph serve as a wonderful example for us? He was willing to identify with Jesus, serve him, show him kindness, 
even when there seemed to be no benefit, only a downside. I believe this gives us a little picture of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. We follow Jesus. We believe in Jesus. We identify ourselves with Jesus. We serve Jesus even when there is seemingly, from a human perspective, no benefit. Even when there only seems to be a cost. We identify with Jesus even when it is costly. Even when others might criticize, judge, ridicule. With the help of his servants, he quickly had the body of Jesus wrapped and placed in a tomb cut out of rock, which was common practice in first century Palestine. We read that they rolled a large stone in front of the tomb. I imagine that when that stone was rolled in front of the tomb, there was a sense of finality. This was it. This was the conclusion. This was the end to the life and ministry of this extraordinary man, Jesus from Nazareth. Some of the women who watched him die were also there watching when he was laid in the tomb, specifically Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. At the end of chapter 27, we read about what took place the following day when the chief priests and Pharisees gathered before Pilate. You might think that it was enough for them to have Jesus crucified. After all, who would want to follow a man who was executed in such a horrific and shameful way? But we see that it was not enough for them to have Jesus executed. They were aware that Jesus claimed he would rise after three days. Of course, they did not believe this. They did not believe that this claim to be true. But they wanted to make sure that no one else believed this. They wanted to take action to make sure that the disciples did not steal the body and perpetuate this hoax, this fraud, that Jesus rose from the grave. So at the blessing of Pilate, they made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. The day after the Sabbath, which was the first day of the week, the same ladies who watched as Jesus was buried in the tomb went back to the tomb. But when they returned to the tomb, they received a shocking surprise. An angel descended from heaven, rolled back the stone, and sat on it. The guards were so afraid that they passed out. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. I love the fact that the angel did not say this to the guards. He let them pass out. He came in a terrifying way, let them pass out, then turned to the woman and said, oh, you don't need to be afraid. The opponents of Jesus ought to be afraid. But the friends of Jesus have nothing to fear. Why was there no need for them to be afraid? Because Jesus had risen just as he said. The angel told the women to look and see where he lay to confirm that he was not there and then told them to go and tell the disciples that Jesus had risen from the dead. But before they could get to the disciples, they encountered the risen Lord Jesus. Can you imagine the joy and wonder of that moment? Can you imagine what was going on in their hearts and minds when their eyes beheld the risen Lord Jesus, when they saw him standing before them? 
lest they think they were hallucinating, they took hold of his feet and worshipped. They were not hallucinating, and it was not a vision. The women touched the resurrected body of Jesus. Jesus told them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. But what do we need to take away from our passage this morning? It may seem obvious, but the first thing is, Jesus rose from the grave. Matthew, along with the other gospel writers, recorded for us the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. He rose from the grave in such a way that the women took hold of his feet. It was not merely a spiritual resurrection or merely a vision. With a resurrected body, Jesus rose from the the grave and walked out of the tomb. Now, this was not a good thing for Jesus' opponents. This was not a good development for them. You could see how this would be problematic for the people who conspired to have him put to death. So to prevent people from believing in the bodily resurrection of Jesus, the chief priests spread a false narrative that his body had been stolen by his disciples. You think at that point they they might have conceded. Like, our bad, okay, we get it. But no, they doubled down. In spite of the resurrection of Jesus, they conspired to commit fraud, to deceive people, to spread a lie. The chief priests, along with the council, may have been the first ones to attempt to discredit the resurrection, but they were by no means the last. Many have undertaken the task of disproving the resurrection, knowing that if the resurrection of Jesus Christ did not happen, then the Christian faith falls apart. Some have argued that the resurrection of Jesus was a myth, similar to other myths about gods dying and rising. But an honest look at the Gospels in comparison with such myths reveals this is not the case. John Dixon writes, It is true that some pagans celebrated rituals of dying and rising gods, typically as a symbol of the cycles of fertility and harvest. But no one in these cultures ever thought this was an event that took place in recorded history or that human beings themselves could experience this dying and rising. One famous dying and rising god is the Egyptian deity Osiris, who is revived by his wife, who was also his sister, Isis, The two then make love and give birth to other divinities. At no point in these myths were ancient pagans implying that such a thing happens in recorded history. This was a reality of the divine world whose historical reflection or counterpart isn't bodily resurrection, but the renewal of agricultural harvest and human fertility. In other words, what we have in the gospel accounts is utterly different from pagan myths. Even pagan myths that involve dying and rising gods. The authors of the Gospels were clearly writing in a way that they were intending to provide a historical record of actual events. They cite particular people, particular places, 
They provide details that can be confirmed by other sources. They were providing a historical account. The genre was not myth, and that is evident when you read them. They intend for us to believe that what they wrote is true. Some have argued that the resurrection was a legend invented later by the church, but not believed by the original followers of Jesus. But there is overwhelming evidence that the followers of Jesus believed he rose from the grave shortly after his death. We see this in the Gospels. We see this in the book of Acts, as well as in the epistles of the New Testament. We also see this in the writings of the early church fathers, including Clement, Polycarp, and Ignatius. We even see this in the writings of the Jewish historian Josephus. Josephus lived from approximately A.D. 37 to A.D. 97. After the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70, he moved to Rome and became a court historian for the emperor Vespasian. Josephus was not a Christian, but did talk about Jesus and the disciples in some of his writings. In one place, he said the disciples reported that Jesus had risen from the dead. The writings of Josephus demonstrate that the resurrection of Jesus was not invented later by the church, but was believed by the disciples and believed by the church from the very beginning. It is also noteworthy that Matthew and the other gospel writers would report that the first people to witness the empty tomb and see Jesus were women. In Palestine during the first century, women were not considered credible witnesses. If the early church was fabricating an account of the resurrection, it is highly unlikely they would credit women as the first witnesses to the resurrection. Dr. William Lane Craig, who was a research professor at Talbot School of Theology, commented on this. He said, when you understand the role of women in first century Jewish society, what's really extraordinary is that this empty tomb story should feature women as the discoverers of the empty tomb in the first place. Women were very were on a very low rung of the social ladder in the first century Palestine. Women's testimony was regarded as so worthless that they weren't even allowed to serve as legal witnesses in a Jewish court of law. Terrible, I know. I hate even reading that, but that is just the historical situation at the time. In light of this, it's absolutely remarkable that the chief witnesses to the empty tomb are these women who are friends of Jesus. Any later legendary account would have certainly uh, portrayed male disciples as discovering the tomb. Peter or John, for example. The fact that women are the first witnesses to the empty tomb is most plausibly explained by the reality that, like it or not, they were the discoverers of the empty tomb. This shows that the gospel writers faithfully recorded what happened, even if it was embarrassing. This bespeaks the historicity of this tradition rather than legendary status. And there's numerous details similar to this one indicating the reliability of the gospel writers. They provide details that would be embarrassing for the leaders of the early church. They don't try to cover up the embarrassing parts of the story. It's not myth, it's not legend, it's not theological propaganda. What we have are faithful, reliable, historical accounts of what took place. The hope of the Christian church from the beginning was that they believed they would experience a bodily resurrection after they died. The basis for this belief was their absolute certainty that Christ had risen from the grave and conquered death. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, preached the gospel to thousands of people, and the resurrection of Christ was at the heart of this message. 
Indeed, the apostles and early church were emboldened to preach the gospel despite persecution and hostility because of their confidence in the resurrection. We read about the significance of the resurrection all throughout the New Testament. For example, in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, we read, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ were of first importance to Christians. John Stott said the church was founded on the resurrection, disproved the resurrection, and the church would have collapsed. The opponents of Jesus Christ would have loved to provide definitive proof that he had not been raised. The Jewish religious leaders and the Roman authorities would have been thrilled if they could have disproved the resurrection. It would have brought an end to what they believed was a problematic religious movement. But they were not able to convince the church in the first century that Jesus did not rise from the dead. The church did not collapse. It multiplied. No one could disprove the resurrection. No one could shake the confidence of the apostles that they too would be raised. Imprisonment, torture, and brutal forms of execution did not sway the church from their confidence in the resurrection. It's not just the case that the apostles claimed that Jesus rose from the grave. They were willing to die for this belief. Now, there are many martyrs throughout the world who die for differing religious beliefs. There are martyrs in different parts of the world dying for different religions. But consider this. Martyrs today die for beliefs that have been passed on to them. They believe that whatever religion they've been taught is true, and they're willing to die for those beliefs. The apostles were not dying for beliefs that were passed on to them. They were willing to die for what they saw firsthand. Either they witnessed Christ raised firsthand, or they did not. It's one thing to die for a belief that you're convinced of. But it's altogether different to die for something that you know is false. They claimed we saw Christ. If they had not seen him, it was a lie, and they were dying for a lie. People don't die for lies. They claimed to be firsthand witnesses of the resurrection of Christ, and they were willing to die for this belief. The best explanation for all of this is that Jesus did indeed rise from the dead. The best explanation is that Matthew, as well as the other gospel writers, as well as the apostles, including Paul, were telling the truth. Matthew wanted the readers of his gospel to know that Jesus is alive. Can we prove with 100% certainty that Jesus rose from the grave? No. Does it take faith to believe in the resurrection? Yes. But not blind faith, not the kind of faith that forces you to commit intellectual suicide, as John Stott would say. It requires reasonable faith. We have good reason to believe that Jesus rose from the grave. The next thing I think we need to understand is that in the resurrection, Jesus was vindicated as the Messiah, God's 
chosen and anointed king. As we have already seen, Jesus was mocked, ridiculed, and derided for believing and claiming to be the Messiah. Yet though he died in a horrific and shameful way, his death was not the final word. His death upon the cross did not prove that he was not the Messiah because that was not the end. In 1 Timothy 3.16, we read, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. When Paul wrote that he was vindicated by the Spirit, John Stott notes that he, this was a reference to the Holy Spirit, who first vindicated Jesus by his mighty works and then supremely by his resurrection. Through his resurrection, the Lord demonstrated the truthfulness of all Christ claimed. He made staggering claims by claiming to be the Messiah who ushered in the kingdom of God. And those claims proved to be true through his resurrection. Those staggering, extraordinary, life-altering, earth-shattering claims proved to be true. He was vindicated through his resurrection. Fred Zaspel writes, And so Christ's resurrection says something. It is the announcement of his justification. He was vindicated of all the unjust verdicts against him. And he was vindicated with reference to his death, as he said, for sinners. He said he would give his life as a ransom for many. He said he would give his life for the sheep. He said that by his death he would affect their forgiveness and bring them into fellowship with God. He said that in his death he would accomplish salvation for his people. And now in his resurrection, God publicly announces that it is so. All of Christ's claims have been proven true. Because he was vindicated we can be certain that we who believe will be justified. We are all sinners. We are all guilty before the Lord because of our sin. We are all deserving of punishment. We are all deserving of hell. Our greatest need is to be reconciled to God. But the only way we can be reconciled or restored to God is if we have a way that our sins can be forgiven we cannot fix our sin problem. We cannot reconcile ourselves to God. We cannot fix that relationship. We cannot restore ourselves to him. We need God to save us. We need God to make us right. We need God to justify us. God the Father sent God the Son, Jesus Christ, into the world to be the Savior of the world. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners such as us. He lived a perfect life without sin. He died upon the cross as our substitute to take the punishment for our sin in our place. And he rose from the grave, conquering death, proving that all his claims are true. At the cross, Christ took the punishment for our sins so that through faith in Christ, we can receive the forgiveness of our sins and therefore be reconciled to God. We desperately need to be justified. The problem is we are guilty. But God has provided a way for those of us who are guilty to be justified in Jesus Christ. For those of us who believe in Christ, we can be certain that we will be justified, not because of our deeds, not because of our works, not because of the lives we live, but because of what Christ has accomplished 
for us. We know that God has accepted his sacrifice for the sins of his people because he has been raised from the dead. Because he has been vindicated, we can be certain that we who believe will be justified. In Romans chapter 4, Paul wrote about the faith of Abraham, and he quoted from Genesis, which says that Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness. God made wonderful, extraordinary promises to Abraham, and Abraham believed these promises that God made. Abraham believed in God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And in Romans chapter 4, verses 22 through 25, we read, that is why faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Jesus Christ was delivered up for our sins and was raised for our justification. We can also be certain that we who believe will be resurrected to eternal life. We who believe have been united to Jesus Christ and therefore we share in the benefits of his death and resurrection. Romans 6.5 says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Jesus was resurrected with a physical body, a resurrected, transformed, glorious body. We, too, look forward to the day when we will be raised with physical bodies. We will experience a resurrection like his. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 through 57, we read, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. For those who believe in Christ, we do not need to fear death because we know that we will be resurrected. We will be resurrected and our bodies will be transformed. We will be given wonderful, glorious bodies that will not experience pain or sickness or death. We will not experience any of the effects of sin. We will be given new, glorious, resurrected bodies to enjoy in the new heavens and the new earth for all of eternity. We who believe do not need to fear death, not because we will not die, but though we die, we will live yet again. 
we will be resurrected and we can be certain that we will be resurrected because Christ has been raised. Our hope is in Christ and our future with him in his kingdom. So what is the right response to this epic good news? First of all, believe. Believe. Friend, if you're not a Christian, we are so glad that you are here and you are always welcome here. And our hope for you is that you will come to believe in Christ, that you will believe in Christ and be saved. You see, what unites us here at Restoration Road Church is not that we're good people. It's that we have been saved by grace through faith in Christ. We are sinners saved by grace. And our hope for you, too, is that you will believe in Christ and be saved. You, too, are in need of a Savior. God has provided a Savior. His name is Jesus. The right response is to believe. For those of us who have believed, we are to continue on in believing in Christ, continue to put our faith in him, to trust in him, to hope in him, knowing that the promises he has made to us will come to pass. Secondly, rejoice. We are to be people who rejoice in the resurrection of Christ and who rejoice knowing that we too will receive resurrected bodies. In 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 8, we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. In this life, you will have good days and you will have bad days. You will have good things happen and you will face trials. You will have ups and downs. There will be times when you have sorrow, when you have pain, when you face trials and opposition. You will also have good days this life will be a mixture of good days and bad days, but we look forward to the time when all the bad things of this life will fade away once and for all. Our hope is not ultimately in this life, but it is in the life to come. It is in our future with Christ and his glorious kingdom. We look forward to being with him forever and ever, and in that hope, we rejoice. Therefore, we always have reasons to rejoice. Even on our bad days, we have reason to rejoice because whatever happens to us in this life, whatever bad things happen to us in this life cannot take from us our future. Our inheritance has been guaranteed. We will inherit the promises he has made. We will receive all of the good things he has promised to us. Our future is secure, and we know this because Christ has been raised from the dead. And so, brothers and sisters, we are called to be people who rejoice, 
who rejoice in the Lord, who rejoice in our hope in him, who rejoice in the inheritance that has been promised to us. Finally, we respond by going and telling. Just as the women were told, go and tell. We too are called to go and tell. Because there are many people who have not heard the gospel. There are many people living around us right now who have never heard a clear presentation of the gospel. There are people who have been going to church for a better part of their life who still don't understand the gospel. Don't assume that people in your life know the gospel, have heard the gospel. God has sovereignly placed people in your life who need to hear the gospel, and you might be their best chance to hear it. And so we too are called to go to those who have not heard and to tell them the good news of Jesus Christ so that they can hear and believe and be saved. Good news is meant to be shared. So brothers and sisters, I pray that we will be a people who are marked by the truth of the resurrection, the good news of the resurrection, who, whose hope is anchored and rooted in the truth of the resurrection and live our lives accordingly, eager to share this good news with others. Christ is risen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that you have revealed the gospel to us. We thank you that you sent Jesus Christ into the world to save sinners. We thank you that he lived a life without sin, died upon the cross to take the punishment we deserve in our place, and rose from the grave conquering death. We pray that we will be a people who believe, rejoice, and go and tell. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.